Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Justice Department's new strategy for fighting cybercrime. This is the top down. Um, this isn't a DOJ CIO driven activity. It is, you know, across the board. The cyber bottom line for the companies that deal with the government. The fact of the matter is when you're in the government and you're asking a company to do something, it's costing them money. And how much is it worthwhile for them to do? Because this is coming straight off of their overhead. And the Air Force's race to harden its cloud posture. Race to the cloud is really about zapping some of the manual process that we have in place from four years ago, establishing this, and just unclogging the whole process end to end. It's Thursday, July 7th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Two Justice Department components have made the grade on supply chain risk management. The Drug Enforcement Administration and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives are compliant with established cyber supply chain risk management principles as of January of this year, according to the Justice Department Office of Inspector General. No other DOJ components were compliant as of that date. You can read more about that story and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We want you to nominate leaders in the federal IT community for their achievements and contributions to the community. You can read more about how to nominate somebody through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Justice Department will boost its cyber technological capabilities as part of a new crime-fighting strategic plan. The department will aim that plan at disrupting ransomware attacks and prosecuting cyber criminals. Grant Schneider is Senior Director of Cybersecurity Services at Venable. He's former Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Grant, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This strikes me as tremendously important because this is not a technologically oriented strategic plan. This is right in the heart of the Justice Department's mission, but it's a recognition that cybersecurity and cyber criminality is an element that they need to be prepared to fight. You think I'm reading this right, Grant? And what is the significance to this in your view? Welcome. Um, hey, Francis, thanks for having me. Always great to, to talk with you again. Um, no, I, I agree with your, your read into it. I think it's really interesting. You know, a year ago, um, the Justice Department created the Ransomware Task Force. So they've been focused in this area to some degree, but but you you have to wonder if it's an, a recognition that this is where they're going to spend more and more of their time in, in the future because criminals are realizing that the odds of getting cost, caught are less in cyberspace. Um, the, the payouts are bigger. Uh, you know, so I think we're going to see more crime continuing to take place, more fraud continuing to take place. And, and while this is focused on ransomware, like ransomware bundles up a whole bunch of cyber criminal activity into this thing we call ransomware. But I, I think if their focus is on ransomware, they're, they're going to catch a lot of different malicious activity or hopefully where they can't catch, be able to disrupt and deter. You anticipated a question that I wanted to ask, Grant, and that is, is there a risk to focusing on ransomware at the exclusion of other types of cyber criminality? You know, when you look at ransomware and you look forensically, ransomware is kind of the last thing that a malicious actor does, right? They they download the ransomware, but they've already broken into a system which is breaking laws. They've already looked around, identified what data they want to 
encrypt, corrupt, steal, destroy, wh whatever the action is. Um, and then the ransom is is the way for them to get paid, right? For the, the way for them to monetize the activity. Um, and so, you know, I view ransomware, and I'm presuming the Justice Department is, is through a pretty broad lens of that's the piece where you're trying to extort money for the activity that you've undertaken. And when you use that framework, it strikes me. That's the thing about it that's always fascinated me, Grant. This is a business model. This is a, a business model that people who don't have a view of morality or criminality undertake because it makes them money. It's not just something they're doing for fun. How does that inform the way that an organization should approach the way that they build cyber technological capability. It is a business model. You're absolutely correct. These are business people. They're criminals, but they are business people. They're business minded. And I think on the defensive side, you have to recognize it's not personal, right? This isn't, there are cyber activities that are personal, but ransomware in general is, is not personal. It's not ideological. It's about money. Um, and so you have to really think through you know, what do you need to do to not be the easy target? Um, it's it's since it's a business, the malicious actor wants to spend as little time and as little money as possible on each target or each activity. And so you want to make it harder and make it take longer and make it cost more. And quite frankly, you want them to move on to the next person. And that's not great for the next person, but that's what you really want to be thinking through defensively. My colleague, Nahal Krishan, reports the DOJ will enhance cyber and um, fight cyber crime through four key strategies, deterring, disrupting, prosecuting cyber threats, strengthening intergovernmental, international and private sector partnerships to fight cyber crime, safeguarding Justice Department data and information and enhancing cyber resilience within the private sector and other government agencies. This becomes an intergovernmental effort that I imagine your former office, Office of the National Cyber Director and others will undertake in addition to the Justice Department, correct? Yeah, it it absolutely has to be right. This this is a cyber in general is a whole government activity, and ransomware um, is a whole government activity. And the Justice Department has tools that are you know very good for some aspects of that, and the State Department has tools that you know are are very good for other aspects of of how we deter and how we message. Um, and then of course CISA and the Department of Defense have a set of tools as well. So you really need all of those tools working together in, in collaboration to be able to, to have the impacts that you know they are trying to seek. If I'm a mission leader at another agency, not a technological person, not a cyber leader at some other agency, any other agency, and I read this, what should I take away from this as far as how I think about the way cyber impacts or should impact the way that I deliver the mission of that organization, whatever it may be, Grant? Because this is that, as I said, that to me is the important thing here. This isn't the this isn't necessarily coming from Melinda Rogers's office, although I know she will have a very important part of executing it. But this is this is the very top of the agency. I imagine that uh, General Garland will be really integrally involved in uh, implementing and executing this strategy. Yeah. And I also think 
um, Lisa Monaco is undoubtedly, uh, you know, going to be very influential in this. Obviously, she has a background in in cyber and a lot of experience, having worked in the White House um, as the Homeland Security Advisor in the Obama administration. So I'm sure she's a, a driving force. But but you're absolutely right. It, this is the top down. Um, this isn't a DOJ CIO driven activity. It is, uh, you know, across the board because. They need all of their, you know, attorneys, uh, the U.S. attorneys out there to think about, you know, how to prosecute and how to go after cybercrime. And and that's going to take some training and education. And, you know, particularly for a group, you know, years ago, I met with a group of, of attorney generals, you know, and their focus is getting people in front of, you know, federal uh, uh, judges and in cybercrime, that may or may not be the result. We would love to see that be the result, but it's not always going to be the result. So you have to think about the other ways that your actions, whether they're indictments, whether they're sanctions, whether they're other things, are going to still be a deterrence, even if you never get to, you know, having your 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 day in court, if you will, with the malicious actor. Nahal writes the Justice Department aims to improve its ransomware attack response by September 2023 by promising to significantly increase the percentage of reported ransomware incidents from which investigative actions are conducted within 72 hours, and by increasing the number of ransomware matters in which seizures or forfeitures are occurring by 10%. Th- this isn't just aspirational. They've attached specific goals and metrics to this, which strikes me as one of the really important elements of building a strategy grant. Yeah, I, I love that they're putting metrics on there. Um, I, I think some of the metrics are going to be hard to measure. I mean, certainly they're internal, how quickly they're responding to reported things, I think is great because it it, it will, you know, that will force um, the internal justice em- employees to be thinking about, I need to be meeting my metrics. I need to be reacting appropriately as these things come in. And so those, those are great. Um, I think, you know, other things that they would like to see more reporting of ransom um, payments, you know, there is, there was legislation, there will eventually be a rulemaking process through CISA on incident and ransom um, payment reporting, but, you know, that's a couple of years away. That's not going to meet the the timeline they've set out there. Uh, but I think anything they can do to be more responsive uh, is going to drive victims to say, if I can get some help, I'm willing to come forward and, and talk with the Justice Department and talk with law enforcement. When it feels like a black box, people are less inclined to step forward. Is there a risk, Grant, by saying we want to improve our ransomware attack response by September 2023, that you signal to the bad guys that for the next 14 months, you can do whatever you want, you can go haywire? I, I mean, short answer, yes. Um, but uh, what you're at least doing is putting them on notice, the bad guys on notice, that, that you're working to increase. And I imagine there's not going to be a light switch that happens in 2023. This is going to be an evolution over time. So, you know, what I would like to see the message to the bad guys being or malicious actors being, you know, we're going to work on getting better and coming after you more every single day. And we hope to be at our, you know, if you're DOD, your FOC, your full operating capability in, in that 2023 timeline. Grant Schneider, great insight as always. Thanks for joining me today. Francis, great talking with you again.
You can read more about the Justice Department's cyber strategy in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Friday's show, some changes on the way for CISA. A look at the next step in its evolution on tomorrow's show. That episode debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. U.S. Cyber Command's asking private sector companies to share more cyber intelligence they collect. Cyber Command Executive Director Dave Frederick tells CyberScoop his command shares that kind of information regularly. Ron Marks is president of ZPN Cyber and National Security Strategies. He's non-resident senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and former special assistant to the Assistant Director of Central Intelligence for Military Affairs. Ron, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What does this involve exactly for Cyber Command to give information it collects to private sector companies and to ask for that information in return? Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, I must admit, I took a deep breath. Uh, I had in my former positions to uh, to oversee covert actions uh, over the years, which are under Title 50, which governs the National Security Act, which governs intelligence. Um, you know, Cyber Command has been a slightly different beast almost from day one. Uh, they have in a lot of ways been uh, been acting as a CIA would uh, in terms of doing a covert action, uh, carrying on offensive capabilities uh, against uh, parties overseas. Uh, I understand why they do it that way. Uh, they have to, I think. Uh, they can't, you know, given all that uh, all the information available out there, they have to leave. They can't leave deep footprints. That, by the way of saying, you're now entering into some pretty touchy legal territory between what the military does, between what intelligence does, and in particular, and you know, don't get me wrong, I mean, Title 10 and Title 50, Defense and Intel, were not written on Mount Sinai. They were not the third tablet that Mel Brooks dropped. But at the same time, there are reasons for it. And having an overseas military command effectively ask civilians to participate in what you could interpret as a covert action overseas, uh, I think it's getting a little close to the line. I would love to know what the lawyers at Cyber Command, uh, I hope, told the executive director uh, before he made such a statement. So I'm a little, a little concerned over where we stand on that. What are the concerns exactly from the company's perspectives about the information they receive and the information that Cyber Command would like them to share? Well, I think certainly identification. I mean, if it does come out that a given company has given information to Cyber Command, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar at this point that uh, there are a lot of hackers out there, uh, whether they're directly connected with the operation or not, uh, they're going to go after these guys. Uh, you're also putting yourself in a position of saying to your colleagues, you know, guess what? You're providing information. What kind of information are you providing? You know, your stockholders at this point are going to have to start asking questions in terms of do we want the company involved with this? Um, the companies are already involved on the domestic level with CISA uh, through national security letters, through FISA, from DOJ. So, you know, they're, they're doing a lot right now. And this, I, I wonder also, frankly, how well this was coordinated with CISA and FBI uh, and, uh, and Chris Inglis uh, over to his director job. So I, I'm a little concerned about where they're standing. Like I said, the, my, my positive assumption would be the lawyers have bit off on this. But I got to tell you, you know, one of the challenges on this 
and I was around for the damage report uh, from NSA after the Snowden exposures in terms of the programs involved was, you know, under the Patriot Act, everybody said, you know, forward here, kids, we got to we're gonna win the war. So they took FISA and they went from ex, ex ante to ex post in terms of when you got the approval. I'm getting a little bit of the sense of the same thing on this too, which is, you know, you don't want to discourage them. Uh, but at the same time, you're going to be in a situation where these guys are going to do a whole bunch of this stuff. Uh, it's going to blow up at some point, And then everybody's going to turn around and say, well, it was legal. And I'm going to go back to my old line about, you know, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Uh, and we're not laying the predicate on this very well yet. One comment you made there a second ago, Ron, reminds me of conversations that you and I have had many times over the years in many different outlets, and that is who owns what and who knows what is the other organization is doing and to what degree do they know it? You mentioned CISA and the FBI. Cyber Command and NSA are obviously involved here, and, and there are so many others, the Office of the National Cyber Director, all of that. Um, we're what a year and a half or maybe two years out now from the cyber solarium commission recommendations. A lot of those were rushed into law and I don't mean to use the term rushed as a pejorative, but they became law very quickly. And it sounds like from the way you just described it, we don't have a ton more clarity about who has what pieces of what and who reports to whom and who's responsible to whom than we did before. No, I don't think we do at all. In fact, I was struck the other day, uh, uh, Mark Warner and uh, Marco Rubio sent a letter, I think it was over to the Federal Trade Commission, uh, regarding TikTok uh, and TikTok's activities in cyberspace and collection for China, which should not be a surprise to anyone. But nevertheless, you know, they sent the letter to the FTC. Uh, on the other hand, I had a commissioner from the FCC making comment a week before on the subject of TikTok and cyberspace and the gathering of information. So you've got them, you've got FBI, you've got CISA, you've got the DNI, you've got, you know, all of this stuff, which should have been straightened out to some extent by having a national cyber director uh, that was overseeing this process. Now, clearly they've had to ramp him up in terms of the personnel and you've seen the hirings that he's done over there. But I'm also picking up to the grapevine at this point that he's been told by numbers in the White House basically to back off, hmm. uh, that his job is to go around and essentially to to greet and meet and to try to coordinate to some extent. But in terms of budgetary power, in terms of programmatic power, uh, he does not have the juice at this point, in spite of the fact that he's a presidential nominee. And I will say that, you know, one of the things that you run into, and this is a Congress uh, you know, putting laws forward, it is pushing the string. You know, they they put this position together. They told the White House what they wanted to have. Um, the White House bit off on it. Everybody nodded their heads. It was great. And then they do nothing. Um, it always reminds you of the old Soviet bureaucracy joke about, you know, Gorbachev or whoever was providing orders and the bureaucracy would go, yes, yes, yes. And then they would sit back and go to lunch. And I think we're getting a bit of that now, or more than a bit of that now, it appears to be with the National Cyber Director. I would like to be wrong in this one, mm. uh, but I've heard too much at this point that would indicate that I'm not. Yeah, that, and that structure is exactly contrary to what the point of that position was when the Cyber uh, Solarium Commission proposed it. Yeah, very much so. And I don't know, I've not had a chance to review, you know, sort of round two at this point that's coming off the hill. Uh, there's, as no, there's another series. It's sort of a tranche of these uh, cyber things coming forward. Um, 
but you know, really right now, Francis, I mean, CISA is sort of running uh, the version of the of the private public sector. I don't know where the heck Cyber Command came into this. I would love to know what kind of coordination if there was with CISA. Uh, FBI is still running their thing. And as I said, we've got a, a number of other government initials at this point. And, you know, from the private sector standpoint, they're looking around and you can hear it. They're grumbling. It's, you know, who the heck, what, what do we owe here? And that clarity that they need to have, um, which I, I think is another little problem with, with Cyber Command's executive director. And, and again, not a knock on him personally. I don't think it's being ad hominem. But the fact of the matter is when you're in the government and you're asking a company to do something, it's costing them money. And how much is it worthwhile for them to do? Because this is coming straight off of their overhead. You know, any kind of, anytime you hire a cyber guy in there, uh, it, you're not getting, you're, you cannot prove the case of revenue. So you're costing companies money. They're worried about, by the way, what their SEC obligations are to their stockholders. So I, I don't think, um, I don't think this was necessarily well-framed. Uh, I hope it was thought of a little more carefully before he made that uh, the public statement, but, you know, sort of writ large, I, I just don't think, you know, we've really caught on to the cyber challenges and problems of security that we need to. Ron Marks, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for your insight. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about what Cyber Command's asking for in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department expects to award its joint warfighting cloud capability contract later this year, but parts of the department aren't waiting. Lauren Nausenberger is the Chief Information Officer of the Air Force. On the new episode of the podcast, Let's Talk About IT, she tells my FedScoop colleague Billy Mitchell the delay in JWCC isn't holding her service up. The short story is we're not waiting. We haven't waited. Um, We will continue to not wait for... um, for anybody else to come in and provide us with capability. Um, We've been in the cloud for at least four years. Um, We have the vast majority of our business workloads in the cloud. I believe we are still the world's largest cloud instantiation uh, for any um, commercial or government uh, entity outside of, of course, the large cloud providers. Um, But for their internal business, I I, I believe we are still, still larger. Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, we are, we're moving forward, we're moving out, we're continuing to approve, uh, improve. We are about to do an event called Race to the Cloud, um, where we've, we've recognized that um, we have a pretty solid cloud environment. It is very secure. We've focused on making sure that it has uh, really outstanding enterprise services that when you bring an application into the cloud, um, once you migrate it, you don't have to do a whole lot. The, the continuous monitoring is there. The identity stack is there. Um, you have data feeds connected to other things pretty easily. Um, you know, we've, we've done that, but we haven't done a good job of making it really, really easily consumable, getting to that push button spin up cloud model that you have um, effectively on the commercial side. And so, um, Race to the Cloud is really about zapping some of the manual process that we have in place from four years ago, establishing this, 
and just unclogging the whole process end to end. So I'm going to be on speed dial with all of our vendors. Um, SAIC is our cloud one vendor. Amazon and Microsoft is our two largest um, active cloud one vendors, um, just to make sure that um, I, I do intend to pass a, a more rigid policy on pushing our, um, our cloud offerings into cloud one and moving our on-prem offerings into cloud one. And before I send out that guidance, I wanna make sure that when people show up and they wanna to move to the cloud, that it's not gonna take a really long time that they can show up, that we can assess their workloads very quickly, very efficiently, that we know exactly what the cost will be, that that is transparent, that we have a solid catalog of things for them to look at from full service to, hey, I just wanna host it, I wanna do everything else myself, um, and that the costs tie to that as well. Um, and that we can get them into the cloud relatively quickly and that we have the tools to very quickly and objectively say, you know, this really needs to be refactored and these are the reasons why, or maybe this is something that we can lift and shift and this is how we mitigate any cybersecurity impact of doing that. Um, and that, that's actually a pretty big difference in how we've approached our move to the cloud in the past is we have said, well, you have to refactor everything. Because actually cybersecurity was, was almost number one when, when we moved to the cloud um, a few years ago. And it's still incredibly important. And we have red team just, you know, the heck out of our cloud one environment um, to the point where actually we've found even things uh, where we've contributed back to the open source community where it's like, hey, we don't have a problem necessarily with cloud one, but we found an open source vulnerability. Let's, let's fix that as well. Um, but we do need to look at, you know, in this, at this time, there are much better ways to mitigate a lift and shift and to make it just as secure if you do certain things and keep certain things in mind. So there may be instances where maybe we weren't gonna move something and shut down that data center before um, because we were worried about a huge investment and then, oh, we're just gonna keep that for a year or two before we sunset it. If we're, if we're doing more lift and shift, then it doesn't matter as much. It's a lot easier to move that into the cloud. We can shut down the data center. We can reap the savings of moving it to the cloud without being worried about, um, hey, it's probably going away in a year or two. So it, it just gives us a little bit more, uh, more play. Um, I do hope that JWCC comes out soon. I do hope it's incredibly successful. Um, at the very least, it may give us um, some better pricing on compute, which I think everyone would enjoy. And if it does, we'll still use our Cloud One as a front door and we will purchase that compute via JWCC. Um, but if JWCC comes, comes into the market and those vendors are able to just rapidly and magically almost spin up fully accredited environments and just really knock it out of the park for migrations, then we could use it for even more things. And if it can solve the problem of um, global data sovereignty, where I can just leverage any data center anywhere in the world, and we understand that if that data is so encrypted um, or if it's just a shard of data that is maybe sitting somewhere else in the world, is it really the data that's sitting there? Could it, could it really cause a, you know, a, a problem with that data um, being somewhere other than US soil? Um, and so if we can solve that problem with JWCC, I will be thrilled. If we can solve that problem at multiple levels of classification and simplify the process of sending data between levels of classification and make that immensely easier than it is today, uh, with many, 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 many levels of approval before it actually does work pretty well on the other end of that work. Those are all things that I hope for JWCC. And as those things show up 
and they provide capabilities better than I can to do internal today, um, that will allow me to focus on other things within my Air Force mission. And that will be really exciting. So I am rooting for them um, and, and we'll see where it goes. A, a conversation that I think is incredibly complimentary to all of this. Once you're in the cloud, you're able to do things with DevSecOps and, and better software development. Um, and, and the Air Force has been doing a great job with this. You have a number of software factories that have been developed in, in recent years. So uh, how are you continuing to build on the momentum of the software factories as you look forward? So there are a couple of things happening there. Um, there's kind of a natural tension at the moment between how do we grow and continue to continue momentum? And then some forces toward, but how do we govern and how do we, um, how do we ensure people have a career path? Um, and how do we make sure that this is really used at an enterprise level um, versus just solving a local problem? Or is it okay if we do both? And um, so a couple of things that are happening there, um, we do, uh, we are getting to the point where in fiscal year 23, platform one um, will have solid and continuous funding. They won't have to run around like most innovation um, programs and, and kind of fundraise um, each, each year. So that will be very exciting that there'll be a, a formal appropriated program of record um, and able to um, really continue that vision of being um, one comprehensive and complementary set of services and products that work together to drive mission value. And that, that really is the vision there um, to be able to provide that DevSecOps stack um, as well as now with Iron Bank, that central container repo um, and, and the cloud native access point as well to as broad an audience as possible. And to have our broader DOD community also help us to continuously make that platform better because it's not just an Air Force platform, it's a platform for all. Um, so, so that's pretty exciting. Um, on the software factory side, I think we're clarifying our language a little bit um, because some of the software factories, um, they're, really, they're really groups of airmen that are trying to solve a problem in a modern way. And, and by that definition of software factory, we want that to happen everywhere. Like we want airmen to figure out how can they use code and new tools and do really innovative things um, in a DevSecOps construct to solve new problems. Um, and then sometimes we have teams that are developing a software development stack. Um, and you know, in, in the commercial world, that, that may be more how people use the term software factory. Um, that's very few of our teams. So we may say, hey, we have 40 software factories. If we're saying we have 40 groups that are leveraging DevSecOps methodologies to solve problems, maybe even using low code, no code to solve local problems, um, maybe doing the functional side, but then um, having another team write the code for them. Um, versus the software factory, meaning where, you know, where is the actual CI CD pipeline and the tooling and who is maintaining that stack? And that still tends to be the, the platform ones of the world, the Kessel runs, the Bestman. There are very few groups that are doing that, that type of work. Um, the, uh, the Air Force Materiel Command uh, is looking at how do we empower all of those teams, but also have them feel like more of a community. And so um, they're looking at um, potentially creating one software wing where the individual factories, so to speak, the, the problem solving teams, that is, they get to maintain their identity. Um, they get to maintain their internal culture. They get to manage uh, independently as they have, which fosters the innovation that we have seen, um, but that they also operate as kind of one um, talent management process where 
you know that when you leave Kessel Run that you have 30 other places that you can go that also have a really innovative framework in mind and you can go and you can cross pollinate between the factories and where um, we wanna push as much independence in, in being able to operate and be culturally different and solve different problems, but a little bit more of the uniformity and a little bit more structure around the way that the community wants to help govern. And so um, I've actually challenged the community um, because I as CIO hear different forces. I hear the community say, we want to self-govern. And then I hear the broader kind of corporate enterprise say, we need to have more ruthless governance of software factories. So I've challenged our development community to say, okay, you guys want to self-govern. Let's tell everybody how you're gonna self-govern. Let's write it down. Um, so that when the corporate structure comes and says, how are we governing software factories? That we can say, here's the document. This is how those software factories govern themselves. And you probably saw the We Believe memo, the, the different software organizations coming together saying, these are our common values. This is how we are going to work together. And so the next step that they're working on is, and this is how we will self-govern within our community. These are our goals. These are the things that we are going to work on together. Um, and here's a little bit more depth into the, the We Believe. The Air Force Chief Information Officer, Lauren Nausenberger. There is a lot more with her on the new episode of the Let's Talk About IT podcast with FedScoop's Billy Mitchell. You can find a link to the entire episode and subscribe to Billy's podcast in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.